0: Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: David Gura in New York. Tom Keen is in London this week, and our focus today is squarely on Washington. The White House released a statement yesterday just after 5.30 p.m., quote, President Donald J. Trump informed FBI Director James Comey that he has been terminated and removed from office. Director Comey reportedly was surprised by that news. He was in Los Angeles speaking to FBI agents when he saw that news on a TV screen. Only later did he get a letter from the president making it official There are, at this point, a lot of questions about timing in particular. James Comey was three years into a 10-year term. Why'd this happen now? James Comey overseeing an investigation into Russia's involvement into the U.S. presidential election. Another big question is what happens to that investigation now that James Comey is out of a job? We'll get perspective on this story throughout the morning here on Bloomberg Surveillance from our reporters, from outside analysts uh, as well. And, of course, we'll bring you the news and insights on markets and the economy you expect from Bloomberg Surveillance. Marvin Barth with us with Barclays here in
0: London and joining me in our radio studios in London. We say particularly good morning to London Radio. Uh, Thrilled that you're listening to us across all of um, this nation's capital. Marvin, uh, I guess there's no effect on the markets except the tape has moved in the last hour. It was a flat tape, and now there's a little bit of a tinge of risk off to it. Do you just assume as the thought comes into place over the momentous – Uh, uh, news in Washington that it
2: will affect markets well I think what did we learn from this Uh, we learned from this that uh, President Trump is predictably unpredictable Uh, and that's something that we already knew Uh, is this actually going to affect any of the economic policies that markets are are trading on? There are some considerations suggesting that this is going to somehow affect his ability to move through legislation. I'm not convinced about that. Um, We've seen him stumble before uh, and uh, been disowned by fellow Republicans, and yet uh, he's able to to come back. Um, Also remember on the key things that markets have been focused on, things like tax reform, Uh, financial uh, regulation reform. Those are the uh, types of things where Republicans in Congress and in the Senate have their own incentives to get these passed.
0: And and David Gore, Greg Villiers, just saying on surveillance on Bloomberg television, he really thinks this will completely delay tax reform into next year.
1: Marvin Barth, how do you bake that uncertainty into your outlook for uh, the dollar, uh, the unpredictability of this
2: president? Uh, that's an excellent question. So we take a base base case, but you know I would argue that we have the greatest level of uncertainty over U.S. policy in multiple dimensions, not just fiscal, monetary, uh, trade, uh, foreign policy, uh, immigration policy that we've had since at least the Roosevelt administration. And so one of the things I'm very clear on highlighting to our clients is that there are significant alternative scenarios that would lead to very different dollar outcomes. We have to present a base case forecast. So we work off uh, one that uh, our U.S. economists have developed about uh, a a tax package being passed and and hitting the system in the first quarter of next year.
1: Mario Draghi now speaking in The Hague, talking to members of the House uh, in the Netherlands. What do you expect he has to say today, Marvin? What's he going to talk
2: about uh, with regard to ECB policy? I don't think we should expect any sort of deviation from the message that he gave at uh, the uh, uh, policy or governing council meeting last week. Um, you know they're still on on course uh, to almost certainly change the forward guidance in in the June statement uh, and then move to start removing some of the accommodation that. They've provided, both through a uh, decline in the pace of of purchases uh, next year, uh, and also a a move in uh, the deposit rate back up towards zero from uh, the minus 40 basis points.
1: Does he give a nod to the election in France?
2: Uh, I don't think he wants to make this political, so I think he's going to uh, <laughs> avoid that and, and, and lead, yeah. hide that. I mean, one one of the things that is uh, amazing about President Dra- Draghi, um, he hits all three bases in what you really need in a central banker. He is a great economist who actually understands um, what's going on economically. Good, yeah. uh, he understands markets, so he's great at playing market strategist and getting markets to do what he wants them to do. And then the third piece is he's a fantastic politician that keeps the pressure off the ECB. This is not something he wants to delve into.
0: I mean, I, I, I look at it. I love your question, David. Um, he's very good at what not to say.
2: Exactly. Yeah,
0: it, it, his pre- and I think he gets a lot of practice in the, the press conferences. From where you sit in London, should the Fed do a Draghi and have a press conference every time around?
2: Well, well. well. Tom, you know that uh, I I came from the Greenspan Fed, and I was always a fan of Greenspan. I know that a lot of people have, uh, um, you know, lost some of their respect post crisis, but. He did exactly the same thing. You remember that, that famous interchange in his Senate testimony where uh, he was asked a, a, a question and the a sender said, I think I understood what you said. And he said, then I must have misspoken. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is the classic um, way of managing manage this. Uh, um, I, I, I do think that we've gone uh, a long way towards tran- transparency. Uh, but I do think that transparency gets a little bit in, in the way, especially when there is a need for central bankers to create some constructive ambiguity. Yeah,
0: very good. Uh, Marvin Barth, thank you so much for your time this morning. Very valuable, particularly with the backdrop and context of Washington. David, in all your reading this morning, and, you know, I've done the same thing, folks. We've been up for hours covering this real history in Washington. What's the thing that really captured your attention?
1: Just the way that this is done. I mean, we're familiar with Donald Trump uttering, you're fired from his time on The Apprentice, but this was done via letter a short, terse letter from the president that was delivered after uh, after Director Comey learned the news secondhand watching it on, on television. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people still just perplexed, flummoxed by how this went.
0: Yeah. Down. I saw a single tweet from Jeff Flake of Arizona, and you really wonder how many more of those we're going to see.
1: Jeff Flake had re- difficulty, he admits, uh, finding yeah. out why this happened and why it happened now.
0: There are the, the nuances of different Republican responses of those with their office threatened by close context, contests to come and such. will be fascinating in the coming days. Thanks to our uh, Kevin Cerulli and all of our team for getting us ready for Bloomberg surveillance this morning.
1: David Gura in New York, Tom Keene in London. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Critic, Continuing to follow the story out of Washington, D.C., President Trump firing FBI Director James Comey. The president tweeting just moments ago, the Democrats have said some of the worst things about James Comey, including the fact that he should be fired. But now they play so sad. The recent tweet there from the president of the United States. Uh, Greg Valier out with his morning bullets note, uh, something we read every morning here at Bloomberg Surveillance. And he says, this is a political earthquake and the aftershocks will persist for the rest of Trump's presidency. Greg Valier, uh, Greg, put this into some perspective for us. We look back at history, look for analogs. Uh, how unprecedented is what we saw yesterday?
3: It's a pretty big deal, David. I, I'm not sure I'm buying into the impeachment story that some Democrats are flogging, but I will buy into this one Watergate analogy. That is, there's blood in the water. There's a sense of a presidency that's in real trouble with reporters looking for the next bombshell, with Trump's allies abandoning him, that that does look like Watergate. And i got to say, I think for the country as a whole, the, the specter of a crippled presidency is not a good
1: story. What happens from here? We had the FBI director overseeing an investigation into Russia's involvement in the U.S. presidential election, perhaps looking for ties between Russia and this administration. What happens to that investigation now? Just a, a process question.
3: Yeah, I, I think in terms of what to look for coming up, three things very quickly. Is there a special prosecutor? Probably. That will continue the story for months and months to come. Secondly, who does Trump appoint to head the FBI? If it's a political cr- crony like uh, Rudy Giuliani or Chris Christie, that would just in, in, inflame the story. And, and I think you've got to say yeah. that you know, th- the other big story is will Republicans stick by him? And I'm not sure they will.
0: I I don't know if you saw this David but we have a second tweet from uh uh the uh president. I think we maybe just got a new one hold on I'm clicking. No no we did not get one. Uh, oh you're yeah, here. James, Co- James
1: Comey will be replaced by someone who will do a far yeah. better job bringing back the spirit and prestige. Uh, of the FBI. We don't
0: we don't speculate, Mr. Vellier, here at Bloomberg Surveillance, but clearly others were speculating overnight that this was a president that sorely misjudged the constitutional discussion or the law discussion of this firing. Do you agree with that?
3: Yes, I do. I mean you just can't say you're fired like he did on reality television. I mean there's a lot of constitutional and political considerations at play here. And I think he didn't sell this. His own people didn't go out and aggressively defend him for the first three or four hours after the firing. As usual, this was handled in an amateurish way.
1: Yeah, some startling photos last night after this announcement was made. Reporters hounding Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, on the uh-huh. lawn of the White House. He'd done an interview with Fox News. Uh, they wanted answers as well. They were out there in this sort of unlit scene uh, by the TV cameras out at the, at, at the White House. You pose a question in your note this morning I think is an important one. What does this mean for the markets? What does this mean for the president's agenda going forward? This is a story, this story about Russia. The administration has not been shy about wanting to, uh, to see disappear.
3: Well, you've got to say it on the one hand, on the other hand. On the one hand, the fundamentals look fine. Moderate GDP growth, moderate inflation, moderate interest rates, good corporate earnings. On the other hand, I think there's two things to worry about. One is the big story that we have a presidency that's already looking crippled. The other is more specific, and that is what would happen to the Trump agenda. And I think you have to declare that tax reform is dead for this year. I still think we'll get it next year, but this is such a huge distraction. Action, that the Trump yeah. agenda, I think, has stalled.
0: Greg, what do Republican senators do? We, t- you and I, talked about this earlier this morning. Mm-hmm. And there's there's people that have stepped forward, Jeff Flake, and you're in Arizona right now, and there's others as well. But as a group, do they all get together and like have a plan, or is it every senator for themselves?
3: I think a lot of them have to think about their own reelection, their own career. Marco Rubio was sort of noncommittal. Uh, others, as expected, like McCain, were very critical. I do think, Tom, that over a dozen Senate Republicans will come out harshly well, against Trump. That doesn't help Trump.
0: That'll be it. Greg, thank you so much. On short notice in Arizona, uh, smarter than us, he's in Arizona, David. That's a good thing. We have no rain. It's been raining like, you know every day it seems for the last 5 days on this sojourn in europe as well david my observation of all this is i am very dangerous mm. in linking back to 1973 that is the gut reaction of those of us that went through watergate and that's hazardous we got to be real careful about linkages uh, to another time and place this is this is its own story
1: yeah the context matters of course that that broke 2 years into a presidency so the circumstances are are different, but I do see a lot no. of people drawing that uh, that parallel this morning.
0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad, or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. Joining us now in London, this is a special treat, Wendy Carlin, her textbook, is iconic. There's no other way to put it. Simon Wren Lewis, uh, the, the giant of Oxford, says, this new Carlin book is almost enough to make me wish I was still teaching macroeconomics. Those kind comments uh, from Simon. Wendy Carlin, you have a special mission, which is the education of the public on economics. It's not the fancy algebra of your textbook, but it's getting high school kids motivated. How are we going to do that?
4: I think we're going to do it by getting them to see, to first of all think about how did the world come to look like it does today. So one of the the first things we can do is to introduce the, to them to some, some really exciting data, take them back to the year 1000 and see that for hundreds of years the world was really a very flat place and it was flat across all the regions of the world. And then su- suddenly something happened mm-hmm. and we got this big gap opening up in living standards uh, between regions of the world which is what they experience in their daily lives so we've got them already kind of hooked they want to know how do we move from this sort of right. flat world into a and world then they get bogged
0: growth. down in the marshallian tradition of a first year of
4: economics do we just do away with it well we can certainly do away with the tedium of it and what we can do is to keep their their interests by linking very tightly the way we teach them the tools of economics to problems they're actually interested in. And those problems are questions about how people make decisions, number one. But uh, I think moving on from that, they really want to understand about how people interact in in their lives, in their working lives, so that it's it's decision-making, it's, yeah. it's interaction, and then we build up an understanding of the kind of rules mm. of the game within which they're living their lives.
0: Let me bring in my colleague David Gurr in New York who has never read Carlin and <laughs> <laughs> Tom Keene
1: making, making fun there of, of the algebra a little bit. When you, when you talk to students today who are interested in economics, how many of them don't have the, the math chops to be able to do it? How big a concern is that for you, and how do we overcome that?
4: The way that we can overcome that is by teaching the tools of economics in different ways, requiring different levels of mathematical sophistication. And what we've done with this online new core Econ Online e-text, which is free to everyone in the world, is to put the maths behind a button. So there's a button called Leibniz. You might say, well, why did we pick Leibniz and not Newton? The answer is by the flip of a coin. So you don't have the algebra in your face, and you can come into an understanding of the of the key techniques the uh, an understanding of uh, of the trade-offs that economists think about uh, without feeling intimidated by lots of maths
1: what's the the biggest deficit you see when you when you look at students today what are they what are they not getting about economics what do you hope to impart uh, to students
4: today well one of the things we are not getting in 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 some ways is we are not getting into economics all the students who who, who we can so along with uh, computer science and engineering, economics attracts fewer women. Uh, so, uh, so one thing is to make the subject really attractive to, to students, and that's uh, the way we can do that is to for them to see it as a as a kind of a source of empowerment, of a way of really understanding the world. Uh, and that's kind of on our side as economists. It's a very exciting story. It's a, it's a, a really powerful tool for understanding what's going on out there. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, that's something that I think yeah. should be our top selling point.
0: I think you should come see us someday when we don't have a firing of a director of the Federal Bureau <laughs> of Investigation. Professor Carlin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank really you. really appreciate it. She's a professor at UCL, and, of course, her macroeconomics. Folks, 656 pages with an equation every three paragraphs. I may be wrong. It may be every 2.8 paragraphs. Math warning. I'll put that out on Twitter for those of you brave enough to take it upon. Wendy Carlin, again, at UCL. My good morning on Twitter will be about the FBI and the many agents that have died in uh, service to the FBI. Uh, My photo that I'll use is centered on Truitt E. Rowe. He died at 33 years old in 1937, and it was what they do every day. He was grinding it out in a basic investigation in Oklahoma. Yeah. And, Uh, uh, you know, there's 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 all this highbrow political talk, but that's what they do every day.
1: Yeah. Uh, And just a fascinating new book. I'm kind of halfway through now by David Graham, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. He's written about the early days of the FBI. It's a book called Killers of the Flower Moon in American Crime and the Birth of the FBI. I can't recommend that book enough. But this is a storied institution, as you say.
0: Absolutely. Why don't you bring in our esteemed guest, <laughs> no doubt ready to write up a storm and give us a surveillance break exclusive. There
1: we go. Eli Lake, uh, a columnist for Bloomberg View. I ask you, Eli, first of all, just to situate James Comey in the environs of Washington, D.C. Back in March, you wrote here that he was the most powerful man uh, in Washington. What role was he playing?
0: Well,
5: I wrote that because I had assumed that after he announced an ongoing counterintelligence probe into the Trump campaign and its ties to Russia. There was no sensible political way that he could be fired at that point, and boy was I wrong, because he was just fired, and that has, I think, caused not a constitutional crisis, but certainly a political one. And uh, we we are really in uncharted waters because uh, you know Comey has made. Uh, we shouldn't shed a tear for Comey. He has made a number of errors. And has earned um enemies on both sides of the aisle, but at the same time, this appears in some ways to come out of the blue uh The timing is bizarre the reasoning is somewhat bizarre, considering uh you know all of the errors on the Hillary side for the most part were uh, seized upon by the trump campaign uh, in the final weeks and days of the election uh so and you know in the transition if this was the issue, why didn't he fire? Comey, then. That said, what I think we will all start focusing on is the line from Trump to Comey in the letter where he fires him saying, You've informed me three times I was not under investigation. That's news because, A, why didn't Comey say that publicly when he announced the counterintelligence probe? And B, is that still true? <laughs> because it seems to me that, you know, when you have a grand jury impaneled. I, as CNN is reporting last night on Michael Flynn. Um, you know, does this eventually do it, end up going to the president? And, and we don't really know. Um, the irony here is that I felt the substance of the Russia probe was beginning to peter out. The more we were learning about it, the more we realized it really did deal with figures who were no longer in Trump's inner circle, people like Paul Manafort and Carter Page. Um, and there was beginning to you were beginning to sort of see oh, okay let's get this in perspective and let the FBI do its job, and now it has become once again the center of the of of Washington's uh, you know of of our politics. And in in this sense, if Trump was trying to get the F, if trying to move beyond the Russia probe. Uh, this action has accomplished
1: the opposite. Is, is there any chance here that this investigation, the FBI investigation, withers on the vine as a result of, of Mr. Comey being removed from that position? I look at what uh, Republican senators are saying this morning. Uh, Senator John McCain, actually last evening, tweeting, removal of Director Comey only confirms the need for a select committee to investigate Russia's interference in the 2016 election. Does this um, shift shift the balance of power a little bit? Does it, does it make it more incumbent uh, on Congress to to, uh, to lead this investigation?
5: Well, there are a couple ways this could go. This could go. I mean, one thing is a bipartisan uh, 9 11 style commission that looks at everything having to do with uh, the Russian interference in the election. Uh, And I actually am beginning, I'm now of the view that that's what they should do because we do need to have a common set of facts where Democrats and Republicans and everybody can look to and say, all right, this is what happened and we can get beyond this because. The legitimacy of Trump's presidency is really called into question by all of this. Now, Comey called the legitimacy into question when he confirmed on the record the counterintelligence program. He never understood why he did that. But it's now even less legitimate. So that's very important because Trump won the election. He has the right to govern uh, and and act as a president. I've defended that right and been a little bit on the sort of lonely side of it. But by doing this, by firing the guy who's investigating him, he has now, uh, I think, weakened his own legitimacy. So it's one of these ironies here.
0: Eli, if the senators are all running, or some senators are running, I should say, from support of the president, could we have a special prosecutor like by the weekend? Or does it take longer than that?
5: I would imagine it would take longer than that. And keep in mind, that's a decision for— the, I mean, it's unclear whether Rosenstein, the attorney general because he's recused himself from the Russia matter. So that might that's a decision to the deputy attorney general to an extent, and I don't know if that's necessarily going to happen at this point.
1: What, uh, what do you expect to hear from the White House today? What are sources telling We were talking with Marty Shanker about how much of a surprise this announcement was. Were any sources of yours indicating uh, that something like this might be in the offing?
5: Well, you know, it's a classic Washington reporter situation where you call your sources last night and they tell you, oh, well, there were the signs were there. Look at his tweets. I remember we were talking about this and I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me this before? I would have had a great scoop. But, um, you know, the uh, so I had heard that this is something that, you know, was discussed in the inner circle. that There was about they were talking about this for about a week before, but it certainly caught Washington by surprise and. What's more surprising was the rationale provided in that memo from the deputy attorney general. The one thing I would caution against is, is, is don't, don't make the Watergate analogy just yet, because we still don't know what the crime is, whereas Watergate starts with a very clear crime, the third-rate burglary, and then we have all the cover-up and everything else. Um, so we, have to, we, we should be careful about making that historical analogy, but it is a huge political crisis, and it's not going to accomplish what no. they thought it would.
0: I believe, Eli, it's a five-tweet morning. Let me go back here, David, and count them. This is not including late-night tweets. One, two, three, three tweets and two links to the Drudge Report. Is there somebody policing the president? I mean, you know, six weeks ago, we were hysterical about Bannon, uh, you know, uh, Bannon, Priebus, et cetera. What's your sense of the dynamic within the White House right now?
5: My sense of the dynamic is that it is very much like the apprentice. You never know who's in favor. One day he can love you and the next day he can, you know, keep you very much at arm's length. I just wrote about H.R. McMaster and the tensions with Trump there. And, you know, he, he, the the quote that I got for that and I was, uh, you know, the president loves, you know, thinks H.R. is doing a terrific job. So, you know, you never quite know where you stand in Trump land, um, you know, but, uh, you know, Bannon, remember, we thought Bannon was on his way out a month ago, and now it seems like he's back in good stead. Um, so I think that that is shifting all the time. But I would also say this. If they thought that by making this about Comey's handling of Hillary, they would get Democrats' sympathy on this, they made an enormous error. Enormous. I mean, this is, they got it totally wrong. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's there's a tweet I think from Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. Trying to find it here quickly, she was she was looking at just the way this was rolled out. She said the White House fired Comey with no replacement set, with no clear messaging, and no legal experts or surrogates lined up. And indeed, Eli, you look at the White House schedule here. We have about 30 seconds left with you. There, there isn't much of an opportunity here for the White House to explain itself.
5: Um, I mean, they they need to explain themselves. I mean, they've
1: created a crisis. Eli, like a foreign policy correspondent, a columnist for us at Bloomberg View, joining us. Great to get his perspective. Uh, Tom I mean, I think uh, I think the focus here to my mind, uh, shifts to Congress at least today we're going to hear from uh, members of the Senate giving general speeches this morning. I imagine a lot of them will center on uh, on what happened last night.
0: Yeah, there'll be the political divide, but the nuances of Republicans their heads, whatever they think and you know I don't mean to pontificate about it, but David, their heads must be uh, spinning.